Welcome to the Breaking Health Podcast, a series of discussions with the most disruptive CEOs and leaders in digital health. Hi, everybody. This is Tom Salemi. Welcome back to the Breaking Health Podcast. Uh, we are reaching our host, Steve Krupa, in the uh, Krupa Mobile, being whisked off to some uh, secret location for vacation. Right, Steve? That's right. I'm on my shoe phone, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> Missed it by that much. Nice, nice case yep. of my reference. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, it's, it's, it's good that we're talking about vacation because this, this podcast is about human resources. That was a real painful segue. <laughs> but human yeah, res- yeah. yeah, but, but it's, a, it's an important part of healthcare, one we don't really tap upon. We do tap into. We talk about, obviously, patients and we talk about technology, but not about the workers. And there's a real challenge in managing workers, both in the healthcare realm, but also uh, for healthcare uh, startups. So you were, you were able to cover that conversation today with, uh, with Mark Woodka. He's the CEO of OnShift. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, OnShift and, and what they do? Yeah, well, OnShift is providing uh, you know, cloud-based software to uh, the skilled nursing and post-acute facility segment of healthcare. And it, the, the, the software is designed to help them better manage their business. And one of the key elements managing that, that business uh, is the human resources aspect of recruiting and retaining nurses to work in those facilities. So um, we, we have an interesting discussion about uh, his product and how it makes his facilities more effective at any number of administrative tasks around running those facilities. But it also opened up the door to have, I think, the, for the first time on the podcast, a conversation about the essence of human resources and, and what it's like to manage uh, a workforce in a startup. And uh, we end up you know, not only talking about his company, uh, which has a very cool product, but talking about the aspects of, of managing uh, human capital when you're starting a business. Yeah, and he uh, he brought up an interesting move that he made uh, when he started on Shift. And I don't want to we'll, we'll let the podcast speak for itself, but as an investor in companies like these, how much do you think enough time is is given to uh, the human resources element? You obviously focus on the management team when you make the investment, but. Uh, is enough attention given to employees, you know, five, six, seven, eight, and so on? No, no. I, I, I think at the board level, well, I would say there's a lot of attention on maybe the first 10 employees of a startup. And then after that, at least the investors lose touch with it. Most of the employees beyond that don't come into contact with the board and the board doesn't, you know, notice their performance issues. But really one of the, one of the pearls of wisdom that, uh, a VC can bring to a deal is to make sure that entrepreneurs who may not have run a company before really, you know, have a sense for how to build a human resources culture and how to recruit people that will be effective uh, within their organization. And that's a, that's a matter that it's been my experience uh, over, over time that is oftentimes, I wouldn't say neglected, but not given the kind of attention that it probably deserves. Uh, that, that's very true, and, that, and these days that creates a lot of stress for uh, for the employees not to have that sort of stability. So, uh, so it was a great conversation. Yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah, very good conversation. It's tough to bring people into that environment. It's an environment people want to ideally be a part of because it's perceived as being very creative and a place where you can get a lot accomplished and, and have a mark on an organization. 
which is appealing. But a lot of times these startups run in an ad hoc fashion and it can be frustrating for their employees. And so thinking through those issues, I think, is a, is a, is a, is a good thing to do. And I think we've got to talk about that in this interview. Excellent. Well, we'll, uh, we'll get into it. I'll... And based on that, Tom, the second best interview on the podcast, by the way. Second best. I'm just sticking with the Get Smart theme. <laughs> All right. I thought I thought you had a, a list in your head. So, well, let's let's lower that cone of silence and uh, allow you and Agent Ninety Nine to have some time off and relax. So, I hope you enjoy your vacation. <laughs> we'll take we'll beat this one to death. Damn it! And uh, let's get into this podcast with Mark Woodka, CEO of Onshift. Welcome to the Breaking Health Podcast. I'm here with uh, Mark Woodka, the CEO of OnShift. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Mark. Thanks, Steve. Great to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you on. I, I, you know, we, we occasionally do get the, the serial entrepreneur to, to visit with us, and, and, and you're one of them. I, I want to talk about your, your company. I want to get into sort of the, the details of your value proposition, but I want to talk a little bit about why you uh, you can't seem to get a job and you have to keep starting companies. Yeah, I think it's an addiction, Steve. Um, I think that's the best way I can describe it because I look at a lot of my friends who have things like steady incomes uh, or incomes that raise consistently year over year instead of spiking in one year and then dropping like a rock the next year. Yeah. So I think that's the only thing I can really liken it to. <laughs> and I mean, there must be something that that uh, that triggered in your brain a long time ago that led you down the path of starting businesses as opposed to getting a, getting a job. Um, anything, yeah, you, anything you can remember that caused this thing to happen for you? I think, so two things. One, my, my first job out of college was for a startup as a, a salesperson in the technology space. Um, I like technology. I gravitated towards sales and sales and marketing early in my career. I love the startup environment where you're really making an impact. You can see the, you know, the effects of your work. And, and what really jazzes me, and people ask, you know, why, why are you doing this? Why are you doing another startup? You know, what excites me about it is we have a lot of young people in the company. We started with two or three people and an idea. We now have 160 employees. Every time we have a new employee that buys their first house or their first car, um, starts a family, um, knowing that, you know, my team and I kind of created the environment that's making that happen is what gets, kind of what helps me get up in the morning and what jazzes me about, you know, building a business. That's very cool. So, so where are you working out of these days? Cleveland, Ohio. We're in God's country. Right downtown, uh, attached to the largest theater complex uh, east of New York. Mm-hmm. Um, so downtown Cleveland. Congratulations on your NBA championship, by the way. That was a long time coming, right? Thank you. It was. It's funny. I'm not a native, <laughs> so I didn't natively feel the pain. But we had a really interesting dynamic in the office on the Monday after we won. No one knew how to behave. Right. Everyone was ready to say, that, well, another one got away. That's just Cleveland. It's the curse. It's what happened. I don't think people got back to work until Thursday. Yeah, I don't blame them. I don't blame. That's really a big deal when you finally win one. Where are you from originally? Uh, originally, I grew up in Wisconsin, and then I lived in Minneapolis for uh, 14 or 15 years before coming here in the mid-90s. So I've been here a long time. So tell me where, where you know, I, one of the things I love about being around startups, too, is is seeing the young people come in and get jazzed about something new and being able, you know, as you know, you become sort of the jack of all trades when you're in the midst of getting a company started. Where are you recruiting, uh, where are you recruiting people in from and, and uh and what types of, obviously you've got computer scientists and so forth, uh, what type of, of, of backgrounds do you find these people are coming from? 
Yeah, you know, our two largest teams are our engineering team and our customer success team. Mm-hmm. Uh, customer success is kind of a function of how many customers we have, right? We have to support and help make our customers successful. And then the engineering team, and we grow as we want to develop new products and, and build out a broader platform. So we're recruiting, you know, we recruit mostly locally. We recruit from the schools here. We've got some great educational institutions. Case Western Reserve University is not far from us. Uh, Cleveland State is right across the street from us. Uh, we also have become a bit of a destination company. We we benefited from some recent exits. Mm-hmm. Uh, Explorus was acquired by IBM. Uh, uh, Toa hasn't really helped us that much. They got bought by Oracle, but their engineering was overseas. So when when a big company comes in and buys a startup, there's a, a certain number of people that love the startup environment. They don't want to work for an IBM, right? Right. So we're able to attract those people back to a startup environment. Yeah, I, I know. I know. In in talking with entrepreneurs, you know, one of one of their their challenges is is really the whole human resources and recruiting uh, process in terms of uh, finding the right people, onboarding the right people, getting the getting them trained, getting them working. I mean, now that you've you've built yourself up to you, you know uh, 160 people, which is substantial, really, for a startup. Uh, any any pearls of wisdom for uh, for the entrepreneurs listening that are working on building up a staff? Sure, a couple. I think one of the most important things was, and I, I took some grief from our venture investors in this in the early days. Is I had um, a VP of HR is you know number, employee number three, um, and my thinking on that it's a it's a woman Terry Hambry who's been with me at the last couple of startups is getting the right people in the company is the most important thing you can do, and instantiating the right culture is critical. You can't. You can't implement a culture two years into a business or four years into a business, and if you don't hire the right talent out of the gate, you don't get going. And right. so that's such a critical function, and I think so many entrepreneurs overlook that. And to this day, I've got you know friends in the region that have good-sized companies that say, gee, do you think I should hire an HR person? And I said, yeah, eight years ago, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and I think the other thing is, if you look at what it takes to scale an organization, you know, our hiring about doubles every year, right? Last year, I think we hired 30 or 35 people. We've already hired 70 this year. Uh, we'll still hire another 30 this year. So I work with my teams to really get good at onboarding employees, making sure that we have a well-thought plan. They come in, they get going, they get up to speed as quickly as possible. We implemented something interesting on our sales team about a year ago, a year and a half ago. Uh, it's an apprentice program where we take young people right out of school, we put them through a two to three month apprentice program where they really get to know the company department by department. They get to know the market. They go visit customers. Uh, and then they generally go to a lead gen team or to the inside sales team. And then their career path from there, if you start a lead gen, you could become an inside salesperson, a field salesperson, et cetera. Um, but really kind of training our own people, um, taking the young talent that we have in the region uh, and getting them up to speed. And that's been working out very well for us. So really give a lot of thought to how you onboard people. You know, I go crazy if I see a new employee reading a manual right on day one or day two. That should never happen. Right. Yeah, no, I've, I'm, a, I'm a big stickler for training, and I'm a big stickler for expecting managers to train their own people, if, if you follow what I Absolutely. mean. Absolutely. And not throwing them into the middle of the project and letting them suffer, but teaching them how to do their jobs uh, as a major part. I, I, I think I had read, read a book or, or, or a notion somewhere where, you know, you, you just, you know, people at McDonald's get trained, right? And uh, we think of that yeah. as a pretty easy job. We've got people coming in and re- trying to change the world with software. And some people don't want to train them. And, and that just doesn't right. work. It just doesn't work. No, it doesn't. Absolutely. So let's get into this. You know, um, we, we talk a lot about digital health on the, on the program. And I, 
I, I, I segmented into a, a lot of different notions, uh, certainly, you know, connected health, consumer engagement, you know, data and analytics and, and automation. I feel like, like your company, from what I know about it, is really hitting two of those areas in terms of analytics and, and automation. And you're doing that, uh, in a pretty complicated business area in terms of nursing home space. So can you take us through, uh, OnShift and its mission and, uh, and, and, and what you're doing for your customers? Yeah, when we started the business, Steve, I think we, we wanted to be in healthcare. Uh, we wanted to be in human capital management. As you look at the business in skilled nursing, as an example, 70% of their operating cost is staff. In senior living, which a market segment we're also in, it's 40 to 50% of their cost structure. So it's a huge component. If you look at the determining factors in quality outcomes, stable, consistent staff is the primary um, determining factor and outcomes in both skilled nursing and senior living. So we wanted to be in the healthcare space around human capital management, and we looked at the various segments. You know, acute care is an obvious one. It's big. Uh, they spend a lot of money. Post-acute care was pretty ignored. Uh, and when we did the research on the business, we found that almost no one had a technology in place to manage their largest expense day in and day out. They were managing their labor costs by looking at payroll at the end of a pay period and then yelling at people to do better next time, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, high overtime costs, high use of staffing agencies, a lot of excess costs that we felt could be taken out, uh, as well as trying to stabilize the workforce. And so it was a very, very niche thing. You know, when we launched our product in 2009, and our original product was a staff scheduling solution, primarily targeted at caregivers in the skilled nursing sector. Uh, our goal was to make sure that our customers scheduled the appropriate amount of labor based on their resident census as it fluctuated day in and day out and to eliminate as much excess cost as we could. And what we found is a lot of the excess costs came from filling open shifts or call-offs. So a nurse has a 3 o'clock shift, her child is sick, she calls in at 1, says, I can't make it. Um, before using OnShift, it would take customers three or four hours to fill that, or they'd run around the floor and say, hey, Steve, can you pick up a shift? You're already here. Steve's already in overtime. This gives him more overtime hours, right? So we built a communications platform to notify all qualified and available people about that shift using text, text messaging or telephony and got that fill rate down to about a 15 to 20-minute elapsed time uh, and eliminated a lot of the excess costs because we're getting the message out to a much broader group of people. So that was our original you know, technology was, let's help you schedule appropriately and mitigate some of the excess costs, and then we're brought into more of a human capital management platform that helps with identifying need, doing some workforce analytics, helping on the recruiting side and applicant tracking and so on. Yeah, so I, I'm, not, I'm not sure how well uh, the listeners really understand in the post-acute market, and, and, I, and I, would, I, I would describe it as follows, and then you can em- embellish it for me. But, but at the end of the day, there's a, there's a lot of pressure uh, in the healthcare system to move people out of the hospital environment. And obviously, there's really only two places they can go at that point, right? They can go into a skilled nursing facility uh, or they can go home. Right, and yep. and my sense is is that 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 wave has been an interesting uh, you know business opportunity for uh, the skilled nursing environment, you know, in that they're getting higher volumes of patients, and but they're also getting you know a little bit more acuity in terms of the sicknesses that they're dealing with. Um, is is that is that what you're what you're learning as you approach that market? 
Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. So, so I would say, Steve, two things. One, senior living is starting to play in that discharge out of the acute setting for less acute patients. Mm-hmm. Um, a, there's a big drive to go directly home and, and bypass skills. So there's some pressure on the skilled providers to make sure you know, the readmission rates are low, uh, they're providing high-quality services. Um, but if you look at kind of the, the, the thesis for OnShift is we're playing into the demographics of an aging population, a dwindling number of caregivers to provide care for that aging population, and a cost structure that's out of whack. So skilled providers need to get very, very good at partnering with acute care providers to get the referrals, um, take the referrals they're given, avoid rehospitalizations, uh, and also manage the transitions of care because now there's penalties, you know, over a time frame where if I go from an acute care setting to a post-acute and then home and go back to the hospital in, a, in you know, a 30 to 90 day time frame, there's penalties throughout that continuum. It's a different business than it was when we started. You know, the length of stay, I think, is down to about 28 days, uh, whereas before it was much, much longer than that. And what what ha- and does the do, do the facilities play a role after they get discharged out of the facility? Is that or does that go into a whole new network of providers? It depends. I think what we're seeing is we're seeing a trend towards post acute providers becoming partners with their acute care referral sources and providing a broad cross section of services. So if you look at Kindred, they're a great proxy for kind of where the long term post acute care. Uh, provider is going. They've got uh, transitional care centers for rehab. They've got more traditional nursing care centers. They've got assisted living uh, buildings, and they bought hospice. You know, they bought Gentiva. Um, they bought home care companies. So they're providing an, the entire suite of long-term post-acute care services, and that generally includes skilled nursing, rehab, assisted living, hospice therapy. Um, et cetera, mm-hmm. right? And they're kind of covering that entire continuum. And we're seeing that move in a number of our customers. Let's let's cover a broader spectrum of services and really be a partner to our acute care uh, referral sources. Very interesting. Very interesting. So your 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 um, your technology is is is. Are you providing it from the cloud? Are you installing an on-premise solution? Is it sort of depends on this? No, it's cloud based. So it's 100% yeah. cloud based. All cloud based. 100% cloud. So you yep. had talked a little bit about your customer success group. Um, what is what is it like to implement your products, and, and what are the success points? How do you know that your customers are getting the most from your product? That's a great question, Steve, and I think there's there's two answers to that question. One, as a cloud provider, you know, my background has been selling perpetual licenses right. of software because that's what you did before the cloud came out, right? And in that paradigm, and this is this is I mean this facetiously, if I sold a big license to a customer and they never deployed it, it really didn't matter to me from a financial perspective, right? I wouldn't be happy that I have a customer that wasn't getting you know, utility out of my software. Uh, but in the SaaS world, in the cloud business, we have to earn our money month in and month out. And the nature of our business is we've got some skilled nursing providers that are large, 100, 200 skilled nursing centers around the country. Normally, you would think of that as one customer with 200 locations, but to us, that's 200 customers because the rubber hits the road in the building. And what you find in the skilled nursing sector and in senior living, they don't have huge corporate staffs. They don't have big IT staffs. They don't have big training and development staffs. So when they have turnover in the building, um, it's hard to keep them up and running. So our customer success team 
was designed to for continuous adoption uh, and for succeeding against goals. And the continuous adoption is if a scheduler or administrator turns over in a skilled nursing center, we'll get the new people up to speed, trained, uh, make sure they don't miss a beat. And then if the customer's goal is to reduce overtime, our customer success team is monitoring data uh, and actually getting alerts. We've got an automated system that will alert us if there's a spike in overtime or there's a turnover in a key personnel. Um, and we're calling into the building to make sure they're seeing the information. We're coaching them through best practices uh, in how to manage the individual situation, whether it's high overtime, high staffing agency usage, whatever, um, to really help make them successful and long-term. Hi, this is Tom Salemi. I just want to take this quick moment to, uh, first of all, defend my honor. I totally do remember that bit from Get Smart. This is the second biggest blank I've ever seen. Often was a hilarious bit, so I'm totally up to that. Just didn't catch Steve's reference on that one. So with my, my name cleared, uh, I wanted to invite you to the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit. It's happening on November 2nd in Boston. Uh, just quick, we sold out last time. We'll probably sell it again. The uh, registrations are coming in quickly. So go to healthegy.com. It's the word health, followed by the letters egy.com. Take a look at uh, the agenda that's forming and uh, please do register. It's uh, It promised to be a great event. We've got a couple of great keynotes lined up that I can't reveal right now, but uh, it should be a great day. And to make it even more enticing, use the code BREAKINGHEALTH and you'll save yourself a little money. Now back to this conversation. Yeah, no, it's it's pretty cool, right? This um, this whole thing about you know, and you you spoke to it in the beginning of of of, of this portion of the discussion where you said, well, we would sell this perpetual license, and then if they deployed, they you know they deployed, right? Um, and if the deployment was successful, I, I you know it was successful. But in your business, that all has to work because the, the wonderful thing I think about the cloud outside of its Technological benefits in terms of you know lower implementation costs and and a higher rate of enhancement um, enhancements to the software is that you're really earning your money right I mean at the end of the day absolutely you get paid for for delivering value and if the value isn't there the customer can turn it off and then you don't get paid anymore that's exactly right you know it doesn't matter if we've got a three year contract we need to earn our our revenue month in and month out. And it's, it's, it's enlightening from the regard of it keeps you honest. It keeps you focused on delivering continuous value, right? Yeah. And, and it's got alignment of incentives, right? You're, you, you guys are, are, in, are in line. Theoretically, your, your ROI on your licensing fee is, is uh, very high. And, uh, and at the same time, you're only getting paid um, for you know, continuously improving and getting better at it. So how do you manage that, that, that process? I know a lot of... A lot of uh, friends of mine that run cloud computing uh, companies, you know, talk about uh, DevOps. They talk about ongoing enhancements and dropping in new features and releases. You know, how do you manage sort of the software component of your business? So we've got a we've got a pretty good size engineering team. For every product, we have a dedicated team to that product, which includes a product owner whose responsibility is determining what gets built and when. And then we've got a number of engineers on the team, and then some quality people. So the DevOps team, we have a DevOps team. Their, their, their charters keep the lights on, make sure the servers are mm-hmm. up and running and the service is accessible. But then we have separate delivery teams for each product to drive continuous enhancements. So I'll give you a great example. Um, skilled nursing is a bit of a unique business. Uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services recently announced about a year ago that providers starting July 1st of this year had to electronically submit work data, basically payroll data, 
uh, for all for 40 different job classifications uh, by day, the number of hours worked, along with some other data. So here's a regulatory requirement that our customers are facing. Um, you know, no no fault of their own, not by their choice. Uh, but we built a product to solve that problem and gave it to our customers, it basically as an enhancement. Uh, so it's something that they needed to deal with, and we felt it was our obligation to give them a solution to it and not use it as a means of you know, extracting extra coinage from them. Uh, as a good provider and partner, we felt it was our obligation to help them through this situation. I mean, that's the way it's supposed to be, I think. So you had talked about, you had talked about the scheduling side of the business, and I know you've expanded into other forms of automation. Let's go through that a little bit, and then let's talk about how you might be using, uh, you know, using the data and some analytics to add value to your customers' businesses. Sure. So I think so. A couple other we released a couple new products last year. OnShift Insight is a workforce analytics platform, really designed to do a couple of things. And I'll tell you how it came about, and then I'll tell you what it does. How it came about was, as I mentioned, our schedule technology. The core value prop for that is making sure you've got enough people to provide the right level of care based on who's in the building without having a lot of excess cost. And whenever customers came back to us and said, you know, we're really not getting overtime reductions we wanted or we're still using agency, we'd say, well, how many openings do you have in that building? And they'd say, well, we need three nurses. And we'd do a back-of-the-envelope calculation with the data we had and say, you need seven. Um, and that happened over and over and over again. And what we found was um, <clears throat> people tended to hire whoever quit or left uh, as opposed to having a concept of position control and how many nurses and aides do I need to have in the building. And so the, the Insight's primary uh, uh, value props are, number one, we're going to look at your capacity utilization and tell you how you're doing. So we'll see cases where we've got high overtime buildings that are using their FTEs at 120% of utilization and their part-time and pair and staff at 20. So they just need to shift the paradigm uh, leverage their non-full-time people more, and we can help them get that down. If they're using their existing staff effectively, do they have the right mix? Right, is 85, 90% of my staff FTEs and 10 or 15 part-time or PRN? We'd rather see a 75, 25 kind of split because it gives you more flexibility, especially when things happen on short notice, like you need to fill a call off for an open shift. Uh, and then finally, that will make hiring recommendations, saying, okay, you need to hire two nurses for night shifts uh, on these rotations. So we make it easy for HR in the building to understand what positions they really need to fill to help address their, their care coverage as well as their cost issues. Um, and then that will make hiring recommendations. If you accept those, those are going to on-shift hire, which is an applicant sourcing, uh, recruiting, and applicant tracking uh, solution to kind of tie it all together to get candidates in through the process and manage them through the process to hire. That's pretty cool. What is the, the hiring rate at these uh, facilities? Are they, are they just basically constantly hiring nurses? Is it, is it, is it that's? More or less, yeah. It's nurse, nurses and CN, certified nurse assistants are probably the larger demographic in this, in this market. Mm-hmm. Um, turnover rates range from 40 to 120%. Um, industry average are published as, I think, uh, 44 in skilled and around 34 to 40 in senior living. We see it much higher than that in a lot of cases. So what we find are, yeah, providers should be constantly hiring. They may not necessarily be constantly hiring. Uh, but they should always be recruiting and having a bench. You know, if you've got 40% turnover, if you've got 100 caregivers, you're going to hire 40 people this year. If you divide by 12, that's four a month, give or take, uh, right? So you should always be looking for those people. And 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 maybe it's maybe it's obvious, but I, I feel I need to ask the question: What is the, what provokes that that high turnover rate? It's a difficult job. Um, I think a lot of caregivers come into the industry saying, you know, I'm I'm working at McDonald's, making eight and a quarter an hour. I could become a certified nurse assistant and make $11 an hour. Mm-hmm. 
uh, not realizing it's changing diapers and uh, dealing maybe with difficult memory care residents. Uh, and I think the providers have not done a good job of onboarding them properly, uh, really getting them, you know, instantiated in the culture and the mission of the organization. They're so desperate for the arms and legs in a lot of cases. They hire somebody, give them a little training, and then give them a full caseload. And, you know, 30 days into it, people are saying, not for me, right? If you look at all the turnover that happens, and this is more on the skilled side, the vast majority of turnover happens in the first 90 days of a new employee's tenure. Right. Right. We actually had a customer, this is kind of a funny story, uh, they decided to deploy a survey technology um, at 30, 60, 90 days to see what they could do to help get their you know, staff over that hump uh, because it's kind of a well-proven uh, fact that if you can get people the, the 91st day, you can keep them for a year. And so they started sending out surveys at 30 days, they weren't getting any of them back, and they were frustrated. So they dug into why people weren't responding, and they found out that day nine was the peak quit time for new hires. Interesting. Interesting. So you've done very well in sort of my market, the VC market. I have you down for $32 million in, in, in VC money. Is that right? That's correct, yep. Well, congratulations. I mean, that, that's a... Thank you. And, and a, really nice, a really nice group, Draper Triangle, right? And uh, HLM, yep. Health Velocity, and, and West. Did I miss anybody there? Yeah, there's some others. Early Stage Partners was our first institutional. They're a local Cleveland-based early stage investor, um, Glenn Gary, also a local Cleveland-based early-stage investor. And our first two investors were North Coast Angel Fund and Jumpstart. Again, local Cleveland organizations, North Coast Angel Fund, as you can imagine, is a formal angel group. Jumpstart's an economic development organization that's designed to fund companies from kind of seed stage to when they're ready for institutional investment. Yeah, yeah. And, and thank God for those, those angel guys, right? I mean, they make everything happen. And uh, they do it. They, they 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 demonstrate a lot of guts in the process. Yeah, and that worked. And, and one, hey Steve, I'm sorry, I forgot. I, I neglected to mention one is Fifth Third Capital, who's also an investor in Oh wow, terrific, terrific. So we sort of get it, getting into the strategic side of the discussion uh, in in a way. And one way to get in, into that is is give me a sense for you know how you describe the opportunity to say what what series letter are you up to c or something like that now we just closed series d congratulations on that so it's series d so tell me how your strategy has progressed from say the series a story uh, that that you conveyed to those investors to the story that that you conveyed to your series d investors where are you strategically and where do you think your uh, your competitive differentiation lies uh, relative to the rest of this market? Yeah, good question. I, th- I think the Series A conversation is we see a gap, um, we see a need in the market. It's not being filled by anyone consistently. It's kind of scattershot. There's no 800-pound gorilla in the segment doing what we're planning on doing. You know, let's go. We think we can make a business out of this. Let's go take a shot, right? Mm-hmm. And so you put forth a plan. You articulate, you know, the value prop, the needs of the market, um, the the demographics of the market and why you think this will be a win. It's really it's really about proving, you know, do you have a business? Can can you do you have a business? Can you make a market in the product uh, that you're planning on selling? And I think by the time you get to Series D, you've proven you can make a market. You've proven you know you can win business, keep business, uh, scale the business, and now it's how do you broaden the, the business? So strategically, we're looking at how do we broaden our footprint. Uh, to cover more of the staffing continuum, to be a more robust solution provider and more of a platform provider uh, to our customers. And again, the demographics are all in our favor. The aging population hasn't changed. Uh, the downward pressure on reimbursements from the government hasn't changed. New payment reforms, 
um, partnering uh, through accountable care organizations. Uh, there's so many things that are changing the landscape in healthcare, but the fundamentals are we don't have enough people to provide care for the number of people that need care, and we don't have a sustainable funding mechanism. Oh, and labor is the number one expense. So what can we do to optimize that cost, get people into this business, keep them here, you know, and take as much excess cost out as we can? When you first onboard a customer, are they, what are they what what are they doing that your services your software is replacing? Are they using another software package or almost never? Ninety percent of the time, they're using a piece of paper and Excel spreadsheet, <laughs> and that's what attracted us to this begin to this business to begin with, Steve. It was it was almost one hundred percent greenfield. Yeah, you know, I've been in technology since the mid eighties, and you know, when personal computing first came out and business apps, you know were new, you saw a lot of greenfield markets. I haven't seen it since then. It was really surprising how big an opportunity this was. Yeah, and how many beds are there now in sort of the post-acute market? There's, we count about 54,000. So, and that's, that does not count things like home care, hospice, and therapy. Uh, that's more residential things, you know, senior living, continuing care, retirement communities, and skilled nursing. Um, and again, a growing market, and we certainly have opportunities to cover a broader segment of the continuum uh, and not just stick to residential uh, care providers. Yeah, very good. So, so the the presumption that I'm going to make is you're going to see some people come in and want to compete. And uh, you know, where do you where do you where do you think you are ultimately going to be able to hold on to a competitive advantage as as competitors start to see you know 54,000 beds uh, where you're now setting the standard that they should be running their HR and their scheduling and their workflow processes in an automatic in, in an automated way. Um, where where do you think you'll be able to differentiate yourself continuously on an ongoing basis? So I think there's two things, and just as a point of clarification, there's 54,000 facilities. Okay, sorry, um, sorry. There's, there's millions. That's fine. That's fine. You asked me beds, and I gave you facilities, and didn't clarify. So my bad. So as I look at our competitive differentiators, number one is um, continuous innovation and value delivery. Right? PBJ is an example. Uh, we've got some other things in the works that I don't want to talk about right now, but how can we bring technological solutions that are really, really easy to use um, to a market that's really desperate for the help um, but isn't uh, historically a big technology adopter, right? So ease of use is how we win a lot of business. I think our customer success offering is a huge differentiator. Um, you know, we're making sure that you're adopting and you're, you're successful over the life of the contract. Uh, we're always going to be there for you. Uh, to make sure no matter what happens in the building where the rubber hits the road, we're going to make you successful. So it's those two things, really, you know, innovate, deliver solutions that are uh, that are complete but easy um, and help you along in being successful, I think is our sustainable advantage. Very cool, very cool. I'm here with uh, Mark Woodka at, of OnShift. And, uh, you know, sort of getting down to our, our last uh, couple of questions uh, we talked. We talked a little bit about HR in the beginning, and it was sort of a natural thing to talk about, since that's a, that's a big part of what your solution is impacting. Um, and I just want to want to go back to that uh, with respect to you know your company, your culture, the, the way it feels to work there. Sort of what when you start your own business, you sort of get to start your own country at some level. Give me a sense for the values that that you try to impart on your organization and your people. And, and what it's like to work there. That's a good question. Probably asking the wrong person, right? You should ask somebody that works here. <laughs> well, I mean, you must have some sort of perception about it. <laughs> well, and certainly some goals for it, yeah, right? Absolutely. Um, so, you know, I, you know, when we think about things that matter to us, one is we're dedicated. 
we're dedicated to our customer success, but we're also de- dedicated to each other's success. Uh, we've got a very, very open organization. You know, I interview every new hire about 60 days after they start and ask them, you know, tell me what you think about the company. How did we do on onboarding you? What surprised you? What were you expecting that, you know, was different? Were there bad surprises, et cetera? And a lot of what I hear is just this is a tremendous culture. Everybody's very, very helpful. I'm not afraid to ask anybody a question about anything at any time. People will stop and give me time and help me. And they do the same thing for the customers. And they do it in a congenial, nice manner. Uh, so we're very dedicated to making uh, our coworkers and our customers successful. We put a high uh, amount of uh, value on innovation, and that doesn't necessarily mean you know whiz bang innovation for the sake of innovation. It's how can we help our customers solve an intractable problem with an elegant solution. Um, we strive to be very responsive, both internally and externally, uh, and we really worship execution. We know that if we build a great business, we'll have lots of opportunities for successful outcomes, and so we focus on building the best business we can build and getting the best people we can to join the team um, and, and be a contributor. And, and we're also, I think we're becoming a little bit old school, at least in some of the people I've spoken to. We give options to everybody. We believe everyone should be an owner, and, and, and their responsibility is to act as an owner. Um, and we give continuous grants to people that are performing uh, and really moving the needle on the business. That's cool. That's, that, that's And I've got to believe that so if you go in and see your customers and they're using stickies and, and Excel spreadsheets, that uh, you're probably saving them a lot of money, right? It's probably have a huge return on this thing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, very, very good. How can, how can people find out about you? Uh, how can they find you? Do you have a Twitter address, website, all that good stuff? And We do. Website's probably the best. That'll give you links to the Facebook and Twitter. It's www.onshift.com, O-N-S-H-I-F-T.com. Uh, a lot of great resources out there, too. We, we, we put a lot of energy into thought leadership and best practices. We learn a lot from our customers. We try to share that with other customers so that we can improve you know, the state of the art across the industry. Uh, so we can all learn from each other and, and do a better job. So there's a lot of resources that are really completely unrelated to our products. Uh, they're available on the website if people are interested in learning more. Terrific. Well, thank you very much for your time, and uh, I really enjoyed talking to you. I did as well. Thank you, Steve. My pleasure. All right. Well, that's our Breaking Health podcast for the week. Mark Woodka, thank you for sharing OnShift's story. Uh, it is an area of healthcare that we don't talk enough about the lack of resources, human resources. So thanks for bringing that to light. Steve Krupa, thank you for uh, for leading the second best uh, podcast. Again, get smart joke. Uh, and uh, for all that you do, hope you have a great uh, vacation. And thanks, of course, to our Breaking Health podcast listeners. Look forward to hearing from you. If you could uh, go on iTunes, uh, rate the podcast, take just a few seconds to uh, give us the number of stars that you think apply. That would be extremely helpful. And if you have uh, an extra 30 seconds, write a comment. We'd love to hear from you. You can also email me at tom at healthag.com. Again, the word health, followed by the letters egy.com. Or you can uh, reach me at Twitter. It's at medtechtom. So thanks again for listening. I look forward to bringing you another tale of innovation next week. And don't forget to register for the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit. It's happening on November 2nd. Go to healthogy.com, register, and we will see you in Boston.